I want to talk about the stifling atmosphere of censorship that exists at a modern college campus. This is an area I have a huge amount of experience in. Uh, I recently had a friend send me a video clip of Ben Shapiro interviewing Jordan Peterson. And Peterson mentioned Yaomi Park. So Yaomi Park, if you're not familiar, is a North Korean national. She escaped North Korea into South Korea and eventually became a, a, a public speaker who discusses the atrocities that North Korea, uh, Korea is committing against its own people. Uh, she wrote a book. She attended Columbia University. It's actually pretty impressive that she's earned as much notoriety as she has, though I'd forgive you for not having heard of her because presently, presently, uh, there are some very uh, powerful interests that would prefer that she keep quiet because she says things that are negative about North Korea and those things tend to reflect poorly on China. So especially we in the United States uh, have a very much a, a narrative in which we're attempting to reduce the rather high amount of anti-Chinese sentiment that exists. It's coming largely from Trump's support base. So we don't have in the media any kind of prominent anti-China narrative. In fact, what we have is the oh, Asian-American racism narrative. I'm Asian-American. There is no epidemic of Asian-American racism, of, of hatred against Asian-Americans in this country right now. It is complete whole cloth fabrication. Has there been an uptick in the violence against Asian-Americans recently? Yes, due to COVID and uh, the diminishment of um, the prominence of police force in, in major cities, the, uh, the reduction in their morale, the tensions, financial, economic, social, and otherwise that emerge during any sort of hardship. Uh, those are the reasons why we have increases in violent crime pretty much across the board. It's not something that's specific to Asian Americans. That is a propaganda narrative designed specifically to diminish the anti-China sentiment that we have here in the United States. Uh, and I've, I've said this before. Uh, yes, that is propaganda, but I personally don't know if maybe or not it's for the best. The people in intelligence have a lot more information about this sort of thing than I do. So... I, it would be easy for me to condemn propaganda right here now, but on this specific instance, I don't actually know if it's warranted. I maintain that agnostic stance. I hope that uh, inclines you to to take what I say to be uh, something that's coming from a place of earnest objectivity. So Yaomi Park, despite the forces that would prefer for her to be quiet, uh, has has earned some some notoriety. And what she said was that she attended Columbia University for four years and that it was a complete waste of time and money. And Peterson was incredulous about this, uh, but she explained that she found the attitude to be so censorious, so, so an anathema to free speech, that uh, it was, for that reason, a complete waste of time and money. And... I have myself found this very much to be true of academia in the West. And I can speak to universities both in America, the UK, and elsewhere. Uh, this is a problem that has been brewing for some time. And it wasn't a problem I was aware of, honestly, until, say, the past, I'd say, three years. I had people all along who were telling me, that this was a severe and serious problem. And I always thought the pendulum was about to swing back. I always thought that. And I was wrong. I actually have a running joke with a friend about how it's the one thing that I have been 
egregiously wrong about throughout the course of our entire friendship. Uh, it, it is truly a horrendous situation in academia right now. There is so much that I have to say about this that I have to make sure not to ramble on too long. So let's stick with Columbia first, because it's a specific accusation that Park is making against Columbia University. I haven't attended Columbia. I have been uh, in uh, close contact with a number of people who have. Actually, I had a, a professor, something of a mentor, who attended Columbia during my undergraduate years. And even back then, I remember asking her about her time at Columbia. And you should understand, this is not a at all a conservative professor. This is not an anti-wokeism professor. This is not a professor who I ever heard utter a single word against any leftist, liberal, or wokeist narrative. She has no interest in attacking wokeists or liberals. She has no interest in arguing for any kind of centrist even, or let alone conservative or libertarian ethos. Uh, she is an anthropologist who likes to do good anthropology work. That's it. And I never spoke to her about wokeism or politics or anything like that. All of our conversations were very business-focused. It was about anthropology, about academia, about building your career and your future and all that. So when I asked her casually about her time at Columbia, what she said to me was this. Oh, yeah, Columbia. Yeah, maybe you could, uh, if you want to think about going to Columbia, they are, they're really postmodern. That's what she said to me. And at that time, I was, I, I understood only vaguely that this word postmodern was, was a dog whistle, was a coded slang for wokeism. It's something that you, ha you can still say in academia because there's plausible deniability. Oh, postmodern philosophy is a, a, a defined and distinguished branch of intellectual thought. Maybe you agree with it, maybe not, but it's an actual thing that you can cite and you could mention that maybe you don't like it. And she didn't even say that. She let her tone speak to that effect. But uh, basically what she was telling me was that the attitude was far too stifling for her and, and for me. She was saying that what she knew of my intellectual inclinations it would not be a place where I would be able to thrive because there would be too many forces, too many people policing my thoughts and what I was allowed to think and what I was allowed to say or write or research. So that's that's one, one component here. That's a ways back, my undergraduate years. So she's complaining, or was in that moment, complaining about a censorious academic culture that itself was that bad, was so bad that I would not, that it would have been a disadvantage for me in terms of my career to try and attend a place like Columbia because of the negative effect they would have had on my thinking. That was the message she was communicating to me. Now, this is quite a ways ago, and it has certainly gotten worse, certainly. So if she was willing to say this about Columbia then, then it, it, I shudder to think what she would say about them now. Certainly nothing. She would say absolutely nothing uh, because she would be terrified to lose some sort of status. I think she just recently got tenure or recently for me might be the past four or five years. And she's not the only professor who I've heard express these reservations about academia. Uh, there's uh, another mentor in my academic history who actually quite is at this moment is regretting uh, their, their academic um, establishment, uh, specifically the career that they've established themselves in here in the United States. 
they are wishing that they had maybe gone somewhere else because it's that bad, because they intended to be a scholar. They intended to be someone who's contributing towards greater knowledge about the human condition. And what what are they? Well, de facto, they are now priests of wokeism. They don't say anything about wokeism, but they are put into a position where they must actually, uh, they must, if not advocate for wokeism in their classes, they must appear as part of a cohort of professors that are themselves constantly issuing statements, condemnations of this minor infraction that supposedly is attributable to white supremacy or um, condemnations of, of any sort of perceived support for Trump or any other Republican or conservative political candidate, even uh, the constant obsession with that. And I'm, I'm actually on the inside with that stuff. Uh, I'll be careful how much I say about it, but I am involved in the woke proceedings, the formal proceedings, you know, committees, meetings, and all that. And it's, it's truly, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It is still something that you can ignore in academia, provided your research does not directly uh, come abreast of anything that is too offensive, too awokest, which is a lot of things. But as long as your research doesn't occupy that, uh, that problematic territory, then you are still able to keep your head down. If you're white, then you have to watch what you say much more closely. But... Uh, just because you can make it out all right if you keep your head down doesn't mean that it doesn't truly bastardize the reasons why you got into academia in the first place. So diversity, here's a good example. Diversity on campus, in departments, is a hot topic now. People want to have more diverse departments, uh, so they're very much concerned with maximizing that diversity. Get students of color to apply so that our department is well represented by them. Okay. Well, uh, no diversity of thought, to be sure. We don't need to rehash the near truism at this point that the political left has no interest in intellectual diversity. They're interested only in diversity of appearance, not diversity of thought. But they don't even understand and realize why it is that they can't get these people of color to apply to their departments. Why? What is wrong? with us and our school and our institution and our department. Why won't people of color apply? To, it's not like everyone out there is, is gainfully employed. People would very much like to start going to an academic institution right now, find some kind of pocket of stability amongst the, the, the crucible that we find ourselves in. So the reason though, a big reason, certainly there's a multitude of reasons, but a major reason that I've never really heard anyone else say, or I've never heard anyone say, period, but I think is a big part of why I got into academia as a person of color and why a lot of the people that I meet in academia who get into it, uh, this is a, something that, that they've, um, a sentiment that I've, that I've parsed apart from conversations with them and my own personal experience. In academia, if you're a person of color, it's a lot less likely that your parents are themselves academics. Now, maybe they have a college degree, maybe even a graduate degree, but it's not quite as likely that they have PhDs. It's, it's certainly quite rare that both of your parents would have PhDs. If they do, if one or either of them do, it's very likely to be in a field like medicine, 
specifically something that allows you to make a gainful, uh, gainful, to acquire gainful employment, and uh, not very likely that they have a PhD in something like maybe education or anything social science. Those fields that are typically understood to be done a little bit more for the love of the discipline, and the reason that is is because people of color have not been established in the country quite as long as uh, many to most white families have. So you do have more of these academic families amongst white communities. They're actually pretty rare amongst people of color. And when you are operating from a place where your family is not really uh, open-minded about academia, maybe even somewhat hostile to the thought of academia, unless you're going to be that doctor, unless it's a PhD in engineering. Even a PhD in engineering is kind of a bit of an odd thing to an Asian parent, because why wouldn't you just get your master's and start working? This is about money. It's about climbing and social status. And these, uh, these first, second, or even third generation minority students who might attend something like a social science graduate program, uh, they tend to actually gravitate more to the love of the discipline if they're going to get involved with it at all because they have this voice of their their parents and their parents' parents even and their culture generally telling them that they should do what is successful, what is profitable. And there's this resistance to doing something for the love of it like anthropology. But when people of color get involved in academia and you get, when they cross that line of being willing to defy the cultural narrative that they ought not to get involved in something like social science at a graduate level, then they really do have what we call identity fusion in cognitive anthropology with academia. So they start to identify, well, I'm a scholar. I'm an academic. That's my identity. That's what's important to me. That's who I am. And that identification is something that you actually find is more prominent amongst people of color who pursue those degrees. You don't find it as much in these white families where there's more of a comfort uh, with, with that sort of profession. They're, they're not as concerned with the endless social status climbing that a well-to-do minority family might be. So you actually, in my experience, you tend to get more of an open-mindedness when it comes to graduate school, uh, uh, people of color who are in graduate school. Now, you might not see that if you're only focusing on the people who are loudest, but we tend to... We, we, we don't say much. We keep our heads down. We keep quiet because we understand that, uh, uh, I mean, we, we got into this to do our research, to do good work. We didn't get into this to combat wokists or to, to battle white liberals all day. There are, thing, there are questions that we want to answer that we find much more interesting. That's why we're in academia. Now, by promoting this wokeism narrative, these universities don't realize that they are alienating that, what I would say, the majority of potential minority applicants to their graduate programs uh, by stifling that atmosphere where people can have free and open conversations. They are stepping on that open-mindedness. They are stepping on the what, what those minority students have built up, their ability to defy that narrative. I mean, when you can defy your own parents and your own culture, it's, I'm not just defying. When I say, hey, you know what? I want to go get a PhD in anthropology. You're not just defying your parents, you're defying your entire culture, you're defying your lineage if they would prefer that you go and do something like be an engineer or a doctor. And once you've taken that step to defy that, 
there's not a whole lot that left that you are incapable of defying. Like you, you develop a capacity. Yes, it's a struggle and all that, but you develop this capacity to see the forest for the trees. You develop a capacity to ask difficult questions and pursue them in a truly objective and open-minded manner. In that sense, it would be really great for universities to, yes, maximize the diversity, even just of appearance, of skin color, of students at their establishment. That would be a great thing because people of color tend to have quite an enormous capacity, those of them who want to go into academia, for diversity of thought. Uh, but they're not interested in promoting the diversity of thought, are they? So they've got this really bastardized and flaccid system set in place where they are, uh, they are punishing the diversity of thought that actually diverse minorities would bring to their programs. It, the way it stands now, I would not have gotten in that, into academia. That's, how, that's the most simple way that I can put it. Not a chance, because I would plainly see that it is a place of small-mindedness, of closed-mindedness, and of censorious bullshit. That's, that's the, the long and short of academia right now. So to bring all of this back to Yaomi Park, I, I will say that uh, she, she made her statement off the cuff. It's not her, her thesis that she's going to defend to the grave this claim that the contemporary Western university is worse in terms of their, their censorship and their, their uh, restriction of free speech than North Korea. Uh, but I'll make her case for her. I'll, I'll turn her casual statement into, into an argument. So I don't think she's saying that there will be greater punishment levied upon you if you were to speak out against something in North Korea, something you're not supposed to, the state, namely. Of course, in North Korea, you say something that you're not supposed to say about the state, you say you're the wrong person hears you, then you may well just disappear. You're not going to disappear from your Western college campus for defying a wokest narrative. Uh, so the punishment is going to be less severe. But in terms of the content of what you can or can't say, I think that she's absolutely, probably very much right. Because in a place like North Korea, uh, I mean, I have no personal experience there myself, but I've, I've looked at a number of ethnographic source materials there. It does certainly seem to be the case that you can say quite a variety of things, provided that they are framed in the correct manner. Namely, that you appear to be someone who is honestly uh, asking an honest question. So if you honestly have a potential criticism of Marxism, and you are approaching uh, this circumstance of having this question from that place of curiosity, like, I have a question about this. I want to know the answer. I'm open-minded. Uh, let's say I, I'm having doubts about whether or not communism is really the best thing for, for people, whether or not it's a good cis political system. To express that question in a place like North Korea, they actually have at universities dedicated professionals, uh, academics, who are there to attend to those questions. It's like a cri if you, it's as if you're having a crisis of religious faith. They are there to set you on the right track. In Christianity, in, pretty, in any religion except wokeism, you're allowed to doubt your faith, and there are mechanisms in place to restructure that faith. There are people who are there to tell you, you know, God works in mysterious ways, or that line of thinking is Satan's influence upon you, or you need to focus on the wholesome aspects of your practice. They'll have things that they can say. They're largely bullshit for the most part. But 
uh, that they are permitted. The questions are permitted. The honest doubt, the feeling of having a question, it's permitted to express uh, to express that question. So you can, you're allowed to have a feeling, and then you're allowed to ask an earnest question. If you cross this line into uh, maybe you're teaching something and you're saying a statement about communism to your students, okay, yeah, now North Korean government is going to be pretty uh, pretty interested in so the specifics of that content. But the question itself, if it comes from an earnest place, is allowed. That is not permitted in the West. We do not allow that. So we don't have the same punishment structure. We're not going to throw you in a, in a prison cell for saying something that uh, uh, professors or academics don't want you to say. We're not going to do that here in the West. They will do that in North Korea. But you're not even allowed to have an earnest heartfelt question in the West. You're supposed to be quiet about it. And John McWhorter talks about this a lot. There is this sense that you're just supposed to be quiet. We don't talk about that sort of thing here. Oh, what is it? Some kind of notion about Malcolm X and how white liberals actually cause more harm to minority communities than they help. We don't, that's not the kind of discussion that civilized folk have around here. We don't say that sort of thing. And there's just this this implicit understanding that you're just supposed to drop it and you're just supposed to leave it and it's a little uncomfortable for a minute. It's much the same way as if you were to, someone were to say, you know, I, I don't, I wonder if those white supremacists, maybe they have some good ideas. If a person said that, then all of a sudden everyone in the room is going, oh, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not even going down that road. We don't, we as civilized, well-to-do people, we won't even have that conversation because it is so settled. That is such a settled quote-unquote argument. We're not even going to talk to that person. Someone shut him up and and just get him out of here. And we've turned an enormous amount of subjects into that, things that don't even run afoul of anything about any kind of ethnic superiority. We have turned uh, uh, so many different types of things into these, uh, these uh, sacrosanct talking points. You can no longer even discuss the legitimacy of whether or not a police officer is justified in using a firearm against a person who is actively committing murder. In the act of committing murder, not conspiracy to commit murder, not had committed a murder recently, in the process of attempting to murder another person, it is unacceptable to argue that lethal force is justified in that circumstance, if it's, if it's a person of color. That is quite a bit different from the North Korean circumstance. That's, I, I wish that we had professors at our Western institutions where you could go and ask an honest, heartfelt question. You could say, you know, I'm really doubting in class, in a classroom setting, you know, I'm doubting this, this lesson material. I'm just not sure if race is really that big a problem in the United States today. I mean, what about the people who say class is a bigger problem? Isn't that, isn't that legitimate? You are going to get looks from your classmates, your professor. Recently, we had a student who was attempting to defend the police, a freshman. This is a big story. And the professor just started digging into him, like like actively hostile on a Zoom call. And this is very much the circumstance you have at a modern Western university. To be privy to the internal meetings that happen about these subjects, they like to call them things like problem, problem students, troublemakers, rabble-rousers, things like that. Oh, and it's like an inside joke. Oh, we all get that one student every couple, every other semester or so who, you know, they fancy themselves intellectual libertarian and they try to create problems in the classroom and 
and I've been in these meetings where people are discussing potential solutions to quote unquote deal with these problem students, how to silence them, basically, how to get them to shut up because they are thinking, they won't say it this way, but they're thinking the wrong things. Now, they don't argue against the student. They can't. If they try, they lose. So all of their strategies are based around trying to keep these people from speaking in the first place. Ideally, don't say anything that sets them off. And in my experience, these are the smartest kids that we have. I mean, easily, easily. Uh, I have one just recently, an engineering student. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he's a Trump voter and one of the most brilliant students I've ever had. Conservative, conservative libertarian, very thoughtful, very thoughtful. In discussions, he, he made excellent points. He's very level-headed. He's not at all a racist person, not at all a sexist or homophobic person. Very open-minded, very fair-minded gives both political sides a fair shake, in another classroom, he would have been one of these troublemakers. And they would have thought of him as nothing but that. Oh boy, we got another one. Here he is. Do you guys know how to deal with these people? Well, why don't you try becoming sufficiently educated in a number of subjects so that you're capable of engaging with an intelligent and curious and open-minded student who asks you a heartfelt question? How about that? How about you be a scholar rather than a religious zealot? That'd be my solution. Because then when these students come to you and say, you know what, professor, I'm not sure about this material. It's, it seems like such and such criticism might apply to the way that you're presenting a concept, uh, maybe an anthropology concept like historical particularism or something. And I probably have a, a number of defenses ready to go because I was always willing to think about, oh, here's a concept in anthropology, historical particularism. What are its failings? What are its strengths? What are its weak points? I'm not thinking of it as some kind of end-all, be-all religious sentiment. Or here's an even better example, like white privilege. If a student were challenging this notion of white privilege, I, I wouldn't teach white privilege. I, I don't care if they would if, if I would get in trouble for not teaching, if they demanded that I put it on the syllabus. Yeah, go ahead. Give me a problem. I'm, I'm pretty much the only student of color in my entire department, the graduate level anyway. So yeah, I would never teach that. But if I were teaching, if I were earnestly wanting to teach about it, and I was open-minded uh, professor, then I might say, uh, well, I'd be willing to explore the intellectual territory of it being wrong. And that would give me the ability to anticipate someone's critique of it. And so all the things that I study in anthropology, I attempt to think about, okay, how would someone disagree with this? In what ways might this justifiably be attacked as a wrong theory or a poor, an idea with poor explanatory power? And the wokists do not do that. They do not think critically. They do not reflexively challenge their own ideologies. Many of them can't. They can't. I mean, they become emotionally uh, deranged. They, they start to enter a place where they're going, they'll just start crying. I've seen this happen multiple times. These are such fragile people that if I challenge them, even a little bit, they'll, they break down and they will start crying. And it doesn't even need to be me. Uh, if technical difficulties challenge them when they try to give an online talk, that can send them into tears into an emotional breakdown. These are very frail and fragile people, emotionally speaking. So these students who ask these questions are branded, they're labeled. Okay, you're marked now, you're a problem student. 
There is no attempt to earnestly answer their question. I mean, they might be offered one round of apologetics, but no more than that. That's It's like a courtesy. It's not an honest attempt to uh, explain to the curious student why a particular wokest principle is correct. That is not made. What it happens is there is a warning shot across the bow of the student. There is no attempt to say to the student, oh, you have the doubt. That's understandable. I want you to bring your, your curiosity to the classroom. Here is my heartfelt and earnest explanation, uh, an answer to the question you're raising that comes from a place of me having truly explored internally whether or not it's right or wrong. That's not what the student is given. The student is given a warning shot across the bow that says, stop it. Do not pursue that line of thinking. You are not to think that way. Here is your token answer. It is not satisfying. It is often, and I'm serious about this, little more than a recapitulation of the exact same idea with no argument, with no addressing of the student's point whatsoever. And that's where it's left. And if the student speaks out again, that's where they might utilize maybe some of these techniques that they, that they speak amongst one another in these closed meetings about how to keep the student quiet for the remainder of the course or how to discourage those sorts of outbreaks or how to remove to whatever extent they can the components of the class that enable that kind of expression from one student or another. So that in that sense, no one's really uh, as equipped to ask questions. But hey, at least you got rid of that one problem student's ability to say anything, right? And where does this come from? That's, that's an important thing to address. Why is it the case that in North Korea, you have the state that will impart some kind of punishment against you if you say something it doesn't like, but actually has a fairly high tolerance for heartfelt questions? And then the Western circumstance where you're not really free to say or even think what you would like. I mean, silence is violence, right? White silence is violence. It doesn't even need to be white silence anymore. Just silence is violence. If you have some kind of disagreement with the narrative and that keeps you quiet, okay, you're wrong, according to the wokest. You're being violent. So why, where does this difference come from? Oh, and, and there's not really any specific punishment that's important also in the West. You don't have that, that same kind of punishment atmosphere. There will be a penalty, of course. They might try to get you fired, but they won't throw you in jail. They might try to use you as a human sacrifice, hold you up as one of these examples of those horrible racist conservatives on campus. Um, they might try to harm your future employment. They'll send you death threats, but they won't throw you in a prison cell. They can't. So where, what's the difference then? Well, I think that it comes from the nature of the construction of each of these, uh, we'll call them cultures, academic cultures. In North Korea, it is top-down, very clearly. The state has basically decided this is the way that this academic culture will operate. This is what people are allowed to do. This is what they're not allowed to do. They can say this, and we'll give this explanation. If they persist too long, then the, there will be a problem in North Korea. But you're at least allowed at the very beginning to have that doubt. And you know what? In, in the state in North Korea doesn't mind silence. They understand any authoritarian government is like this. They understand that there are going to be people who don't like authoritarian regimes. As long as you are quiet, they like that. They're not even hostile to that. It's not that they want you in an authoritarian state. 
they would like for you to blindly accept everything, but they are not naive and they know that that's not possible to get every citizen to blindly believe. They are looking for near ubiquitous presence of either blind belief or silence, a willingness not to say anything, to just keep your head down so that you don't get in trouble. That's they, they quite like that. And so in North Korea, the system from the top down is that's the efficiency that they're going for. They have a goal. We want people to either believe or be quiet. So these are the things we will foster and cultivate. And in the West, what we have is very different or rather different. It's not so much a top-down construction as it is simultaneously a bottom-up and top-down construction. In the West, it's not that the government has made wokeism to suit its own ends. It's not that the government produced this academic culture to try and get people to think in a certain way. Now, I think that there's plenty of evidence, especially if you look at the propaganda media and set that against the realities in the country. Um, there does appear to be a top-down effort to modulate, to manage wokeism in the United States and in other places in the West. And that top-down effort mixes with what is in many ways an organic development of wokest culture, which is largely religious in origin. That's why I'm especially well-equipped to speak about it, being a scholar of religion. And that, that intersection is, is distinct. It's not quite the same as the, say, a North Korean, rather largely top-down construction. It has, we have some idiosyncrasies here in the West, in our version of, uh, of academic culture, aka wokeism. What we've got here is because it is a mixture of bottom-up and top-down constructions, you can't have the government openly put its power and weight behind the academic wokest culture. You can't give professors the power to put someone in prison. You can't even give them the power to report someone and then the government puts them in prison for having said or done or specifically said or thought the wrong thing. That's why they have these other forms of punishment. Um, alienation, censorship, vilification, death threats. Uh, soft power is what it's called, soft power. The government in the West uses soft power to modulate and control and gently direct the flow of wokeism without actually building it up from the ground up. It, is, uh, it maintains this, this organic component where it will build itself from the bottom and then it will meet the government somewhere. And this really speaks to Yaomi Park's point, because I think that this is a big part, if not the biggest part, of why she's right when she says that it's worse here than in North Korea. Not worse in that you'll be punished more severely, but worse in that this is a more powerful mode of propaganda technology. What have they got in North Korea? The government basically sets a narrative, and people will obey it either out of nationalist fervor or fear of saying otherwise. In the West, we've actually gotten people to not only buy this shit of their own volition, but to willfully be the force that punishes those who do not buy it. So the government doesn't need to do anything, really, if someone goes afoul of a wokest narrative in a college campus. If I were to speak out against wokeism publicly, the government would not interject itself at all. There's no point along that path where the government is my problem directly. They do enable wokeism 
much the same. The, the intelligence community in the U.S. has done this way way back in the 50s. There's plenty of documentation on that. If you want to accuse me of conspiracy theorizing, then I would just want you to, uh, to, to be accusing me of the right thing. Your argument, if you want to accuse me of conspiracy theorizing, and this is a bit of an aside, your argument is not that I am theorizing about conspiracies. Your argument is that uh, those conspiracies are no longer in effect, that they have stopped doing those conspiracies that they have already been caught doing, like the integration of CIA journalists into the New York Times, that sort of thing. They did do that. They've been caught doing it. We know they would do it. We know they have done it. Are they still doing it? That's the question. So just if you don't like what I just said, then then make sure that you're correct in your criticism you're making of me. So to return to the point, what you don't have in North Korea is the people themselves being the ones who produce the punishment against the person who's committed wrong thing. Now, they will report that person, but the government is the one that meets out the punishment. In the West, we, we do it ourselves. We have basically produced this religion that inspires people to go and perform the exorcisms personally, to cast out the demons from their classrooms, the garden variety conservatives, to cast them out. That's what we've gotten our own people to do. And it, it's a much more elegant technology. It, it's, it's much more efficient. I mean, you don't have to do any of the... Imagine if you could, if you could grassroots, you, you, could, you could outsource your punishment apparatus to the people themselves, and they will do it willingly as a form of recreation. They'll do it for fun. They'll hunt down people on Twitter and elsewhere to punish for thinking the wrong things, even years in the past. You get the citizens themselves to do that. You don't need to strain your prison state. You don't need to strain your judiciary system. You don't need to have any thought inspectors or anything like that if the people themselves are willing to do it. That is a much more powerful kind of propaganda than anything they've got in North Korea. I mean, the, honestly, the North Korean authoritarian system, uh, the, the academic culture they produced, it's downright primitive by comparison to what wokists have, have to, to the manifestation of wokeism in the left. And I think it's more dangerous. I think it's more dangerous because we haven't seen that much of this before, this wokeism. There's, there's a lot of it back in the 70s. This culture was, again, in many ways predominant. Uh, but there were other things going on at the time as well. Uh, this is somewhat unexplored territory. I know that a lot of conservative and libertarian thinkers will will relate this directly to communist authoritarianism. It's not. It's really not the same. This is this is more of a neoliberal authoritarianism. And I, I think that this is invoking, namely, social media, communications technology, in a way that no other society in history has been able to do. We have a new technology that changes the human environment, that changes the ways that things can happen. And I think that what we have in the West is the most advanced propaganda network that humanity has ever seen, enabled by these developments in technology. Authoritarian uh, thought suppression really just doesn't even come close to the sophistication of what we got. Honestly, I'm an anthropologist. I'm a social scientist. It is my job to study human cultures and humanity generally. And I have to admit, Full disclosure, when I see wokeism, when I step back and I see it, I see that it's the simultaneously bottom-up and top-down construction. I see its purposes. I see it for what it is. I look at it objectively. I take a side, I step away from my hatred of it and my personal sentiments, and I see something that is very elegant. It is such 
a well-oiled machine for thought control and propaganda distribution that I have to marvel. Just as a matter of, of appreciating wokeism as the anthropological, this monolithic accomplishment that it is, I have to say, well, you know what, gents, at the end of the day, I got to tip my hat to you. As, as horrendous as it is for me to live within this, it's very impressive. It's very impressive that you manage to do so much and you get, and you don't even have to expend that much. You do it, you throw out your propaganda. Yes, you've got your tendrils in the corporate media and with, with slight dire direction, with utilizing channels and canals to mobilize wokeness into precisely the, the ideal form that exists in, for that moment. Oh, brilliant. But I, it reaches a point where I start to think, you know what, CIA, hey, listen, I figured it out. Can I can can I have a job? <laughs> you want me to work for you? They, apparently, the the uh, they wouldn't terribly mind uh, social scientists working for them. In fact, I've seen advertisements for them seeking out social scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, etc., to fill their ranks. Because who do you think comes up with this stuff? Hey, as I said, I don't have the information that they've got. Maybe this is for the best. Maybe there are threats that I don't see or you don't see that they see because they have access to that information. And maybe they're aware of foreign threats that are looming inward on the West and that whatever sentiments they're trying to make prominent in the public are, are actually for the best. I maintain that. So I'm not even saying that hypothetically, I'm not a joiner for that reason. It's just, I would have to be privy to that information in order to be on board with a project like that. But nonetheless, that that's, uh, it's it's much the same as if I were to look in the past at Genghis Khan. Wow, he killed a lot of people, a lot of people. But from where we are in the present, you can look back and you can think, wow, just the numbers on paper, looking at the maps of his, the territories he conquered and whatnot. Well, that's it's impressive. It's impressive. When you step back from it, when you're centuries separated from that, it's easier to acknowledge the marvel of it. The Roman Empire, I mean, there was slavery, enormous amount of war. But at the same time, hey, it's grand. It's certainly grand. Like Voldemort, you know, great, powerful, uh, great, evil, but great. So woke is in much, in much the same way. I, I marvel at it. And, uh, but that's... That only reinforces my fear once I recall that, hey, I'm, I'm in this. I'm stuck in it. And this being rather uncharted territory, we don't necessarily know where its fault lines are. If the, if the powers that be, whomever is modulating wokeism, whether it's the government or in specific intelligence community or oligarchs, elites, what have you, I doubt that they are able to, to turn that. It's a big ship. They, they can't steer it very quickly. So there's, there's an inherent risk in uh, instability there because they are utilizing subtle channels and directing and changing the streams of wokish trends gently, like the anti-Asian uh, racism sentiment that is introduced from the top down, is rather plainly visible as an attempt to reduce anti-Chinese sentiment in the West. And that was gently insinuated into wokeism, not something that developed organically. It's, it was, those are the marching orders. Now they can do that, but when the bigger stuff comes along, I mean, they've set up these narratives about how to react when there is some police violence against a black person. 
how to react when a conservative politician says this or that. And they set these rules. And part of the disadvantage in having it be, to some extent, a grassroots organization, uh, a grassroots style of thinking, they're not necessarily able to change it all that much. So I worry about whether or not they can control what they've built. You know, this is something of a Frankenstein's monster. Strong, but uh, maybe too strong. <laughs> maybe something that, uh, and I think that it's it will collapse in on itself. Wokeism, it, uh, it's unstable. It's, it's um, something to truly marvel at, but it's unstable. It's, it cannot stand under its own weight. I should hope that the people who are modulating it right now understand that it is temporary. Understand that this, like any aggressive cultural movement, is is going to uh, it will diffuse itself out of existence eventually, and maybe whoever's in charge will have a hand in in dismantling wokeism, as was the case with the hippie movement back in the seventies. The hippie movement was dismantled from the top down. Richard Nixon, sitting U.S. president, actually weighed in on the Charles Manson case. This is, I think, this may have been. The first time, or at least the first time in a long time, that a sitting U.S. president openly commented on ongoing court proceedings with the intention, obviously, of modulating. I mean, this is this is tricky Dick Nixon that we're talking about here. I don't think in retrospect anyone's going to defend the integrity of his involvement there. And uh, it's plainly obvious that this was this was done to basically bring the hippie movement to an end, to make average folk afraid of hippies, to be afraid that they were part of some kind of satanic murder cult. And we may well see the same thing. We may see history repeat itself. We may see uh, the top-down component of the wokest construction uh, be its ultimate downfall. So that for same force which enabled it and cultivated it all those years uh, may be what ultimately, when wokeism is no longer useful to them up at the top, to discard it, to seize upon some kind of similar situation. Uh, I would think that the intelligence community right now probably has a number of dossiers on major figures within wokeism, Black Lives Matter, trans rights, etc., and has dirt on a lot of these people and is ready to shut wokeism down at a moment's notice if they need to, or at least to try to do that. Uh, maybe, who knows, um, sex scandals, abuse scandals, any number of things that they could use. I mean, it's not hard. Wokists are not good people. They're not. They're not moral people. How many stories have we recently had about wokists murdering people by drunk driving? Wokists are the kind of people who are themselves so miserable that they are more likely to be someone who abuses substances. And then they are more likely also to be the sort of sententious moralizers who will not examine critically, reflexively, their own drinking and driving. So, I, I mean, how many wokists do I know in academia who are habitual pattern drunk drivers? So many of them. There's so many. They do it very casually. They don't, they don't seem to think that there's anything wrong with it because they're good people, because they're wokists. So they get to play with the rules. You know, the, those are white supremacist laws anyway, right? My conservative friends, if they drink at all, they would never drive. No way. Jeez, they, they, that's a very different kind of morality they're operating from, the wokists. For them, if you believe and if you make these Facebook posts, then okay, apparently you're a good person and you can go drink and drive and do all other sorts of, of uh, illicit or immoral things. Conservatives don't tend to think that way.
they, they really don't. I mean, I have my own gripes with conservatism, but I'm increasingly, uh, they seem like very small gripes the longer we live with wokeism. So for all of this, I really haven't even said anything about what the content of all of this, uh, th this wokeism in the classroom, the content that you're not allowed to defy, the sorts of things that you're not allowed to say. Uh, I've, I've talked around that to make my point, but uh, that will have to wait for another time because there's so much more to say about that as well.